Art has led the way in seeing mental illness not as alien or contemptible, but part of the human condition, even as a positive and useful experience. Modern art has even celebrated mental suffering as a creative adventure. This psychiatric modernism started with the, quote, madness, end quote, of Vincent van Gogh, and led to work by patients being discovered as a new kind of art. A Short History of Mental Illness in Art by Jonathan Jones in The Guardian. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, the podcast where we share real stories of mental disorder to overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. Hello and welcome to our first listener-based podcast. We've got two awesome guests today. We have one guest with disorder and one guest who is a professional. Uh, Devin Villacampa is going to join us and talk about the disorder he grew up around and how it affected him and his life's passion, which is art and specifically writing. He's an aspiring writer and an actual writer of plays and has a real passion for it that he, because of the way he grew up and things he experienced, connects to disorder and a lot of his fears. And I think it's going to be a fascinating interview. And what we ultimately arrive at with Devin is this need for connection and for expression, for someone with pain to express it. And Amanda Rabinowitz picks it up from there, talking about from her perspective as a clinical psychologist, the value of that expression and of being able to connect and share with someone in all kinds of different types of therapy. So we've talked about therapy in a general sense. We've talked about how valuable it can be and heard firsthand its benefits. But Amanda takes us through a lot of the specific types of therapy, the different techniques, and what she's seen in research and in the practice of therapy. It was so fun to connect with Amanda, and I'm excited for you guys to hear from her. Um, She did her dissertation for her PhD on the emotional changes of people who've gone through traumatic brain injury. So as you can imagine, I was excited to talk to her, connect with her. I didn't get all my questions in, but I think we're going to become pen pals. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you guys are going to get a lot of, out of this episode. And I'm hoping that we continue to have some listener-based podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. I think with the contact we've had so far already, even just talking about this first season of Redeeming Disorder, we definitely plan on doing this again. So it goes to show how valuable that contact is and how good the conversations that come of you reaching out to us can be where we've gotten so much out of the conversations ourselves and we're excited to keep hearing from you and seeing what you have to say. So here we go. These two interviews are going to have a lot for you that is practical, some stuff that is esoteric, and hopefully a lot that's actionable that you can get a lot out of. And and while you guys are all looking up what esoteric means, we're going to go ahead and get the rest of these I, interviews out. <laughs> esoteric was not the right word choice. It, <laughs> Whenever I hang out with Spencer, I have to bring a dictionary because he's just a little too smart. Because uh, I misuse words. I'm a fraud. So without without further ado, here are the interviews. 
So our first listener guest today, I'm really excited about because this is a person who can speak to a depiction of disorder that we often see or have seen in the media. And that is the depiction you often see of the mad artist or creative type and the relationship between disorder and art. He can speak to this both with his environment as he went through a lot of things and witnessed disorder around him, as well as with his personal passions, which are uh, art and specifically writing, which is something I'm interested in as well. So really excited to get into that and hear what our guest has to say. His name is Devin Villacampa and welcome, Devin. Hey, Spencer, Laura, how are you guys doing? Good, thanks for being here. I'm ecstatic. Um, you know, I've been listening to this podcast like since the last um, few weeks you guys have been doing it, and I've really been engrossed in the stories that I've heard, and I'm just uh, really a- admirable of what you guys have put together, and I'm just really looking forward to this. We're flattered. <laughs> You're, you'll get <laughs> yeah. everywhere with, with uh, <laughs> flattery with us. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we're really That's happy with how it's gone so far. <laughs> um <laughs> And excited to talk to you too. Uh, I guess, you know, there's no super easy way to segue into this, but do you want to introduce everyone to your encounters, your history and past with disorder? Yeah, it sounds good. Um, so my experience in a nutshell, if you want to say it like that, um, I essentially was raised um, in a single parent household by my father after my mother um, struggled a lot with alcoholism and bipolar disorder when i was like mm-hmm. um i think i must have been in like first grade and she really like walked out of my family but i was really like neglected for the first like seven or eight years of my life while my dad was like working in new york city and my mom was essentially like taking care of me and my infant brother at home um wow. yeah so we really had a lot of like tumultuous experiences growing up um then there were also instances of physical abuse that went along with that which prompted them to get a divorce shortly after that um Uh. yeah so after that i definitely struggled a lot growing up in school um i think a lot of it was sort of aftershock from what i felt for my parents divorce just a lot of like social anxiety that like became pressed down upon me Mm -hmm. so that's sort of the gist of um, where I'm at, where I've come since then. Right. Wow. So you've uh, you witnessed so much disorder and dysfunction around you, and it seems as if a lot of what you might struggle with cascaded from those experiences. And I mean, that's that's really hard having one parent absent and the other present, but yeah. absent maybe in another sense. Do you, um, do you still talk to your mom or is that relationship kind of? Yeah. I mean, like, it's a very, um, a strange relationship. Like, I think, I mean, I think I'm willing to give like specific examples just so you sort of like understand like the extent of what it is. Yeah. Um, so when I was really young, the biggest experiences I recall with my mom were sort of like playing dolls with her or like playing with action figures. And she always like engrossed me in these like imaginary worlds and like stories that we would mm-hmm. tell together and like construct together yeah. and like when i was looking at like other families like i always saw their relationships with their moms just being like sort of different 
And I never noticed that, like, my own mother was just, like, not as ingrained in reality as, like, mm-hmm. other families that I saw. I mean, have you guys mm-hmm. ever seen the, um, the movie Tree of Life? I actually have. Okay. Uh, it's been a yeah, while, though. You, yeah, you know the uh, mother in that movie? I, I All I really remember is Brad Pitt being super authoritarian. <laughs> I don't remember the mother that well. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I'm sure it's, like, what most people probably remember. But, um... <laughs> Yeah, she was a very, like, fanciful, sort of, like, otherworldly character in the movie. And, like, when okay. I saw that, I really thought back to how my mom treated me growing up because, you know, I wasn't really, like, properly socialized. I was kind of just, like, stuck in front of, like, Disney movies and just, like, we went yeah. through all these, like, different stories together and everything. And at the time, she was definitely struggling with, like, heavy substance abuse that I wasn't aware of whatsoever so she wasn't able to be your mom really like you were kind of just somebody with her but not she wasn't right. being your mom yeah no i mean like even back then i remember there was this whole night where we were like making this like construction paper um book together and there was some kind of incident where she started like crying i think because of something i said and like mm. you know it's, it's not like normal for like a grown woman to like end up in tears because of something that like her six-year-old or seven-year-old son says and i remember her saying like you know i didn't just see myself as being your mom i see myself as being your best friend oh wow that's a lot of pressure for a six-year-old and i mean that's so heavy given kids often interpret those situations as their fault i mean much less when they're being told in a way it's it's their fault if she's you know saying that you upset her yeah, and it's like, back then, I didn't even interpret any of that as, like, being abnormal in any way, because, like, despite, like, the obvious dysfunction that I see now, like, I I loved being with my mom, and I still, like, loved the childhood that I had, because I just, like, it was normal to me, and I wasn't aware of anything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a big theme we've seen so far is everyone thinks their childhood is normal until they're out of it. Yeah. So, do you think the way that she um, kind of delved into imagination was a result of her bipolar disorder, or was that more related to substance abuse? It's really hard to say because I feel like there's almost sort of like ghost stories within my family, or like whenever I talk to my dad and try to like get more information, like he obviously has a lot of like pent up aggression with like how he feels about my mom. Right. So, yeah. So whenever I try to, like, real information out of him, he'll always say sort of, like, ominous things. Like, you know, she wasn't a good mother. She wasn't she wasn't attentive. You shouldn't be thinking about her. Mm-hmm. So I'm always sort of, like, scared to pry for more information because, like, I'm not even sure mm-hmm. if, like, I really want to, like, know that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you still have a working relationship with your dad, though, and you can t- at least ask him or if you yeah. dare ask him? If I dare ask him. Um, <laughs> it's... It's very difficult because, like, my family definitely went through a lot, and I always felt like we're in sort of this, like, cooling period where we just don't want to bring it up for, like, everyone's mm-hmm. sake, like, especially mine, especially my dad. My brother was, like, so young when all of that happened. He wasn't really cognizant enough to really process what happened. Yeah, yeah. God, I got to say, Devin, I relate a lot to a lot of what you're saying that – um, I feel as if you had just this intense experience of all these issues where a lot of them ring true to me just on a lesser scale that was less extreme where I did have a parent who uh, is and was an alcoholic. I do have a parent with extreme mood swings, although you probably wouldn't 
call it bipolar disorder, or at least it hasn't been diagnosed as that. And I did experience the phenomenon that until you reach a certain age, you just don't pick up on those things. Yeah. Like it was very, and I, in our first episode, I talked about this a little bit that I think a big part of my depression I experienced as a kid was when I actually realized that my parent was an alcoholic, that, that I wasn't even aware prior to that point. Uh, do you feel like you noticed there was any point where you noticed your issues coming up as you maybe started to perceive your parents or your situation differently? Or was it just very gradual where you couldn't pinpoint any time that it really set on? Yeah, it was definitely when I was like in second grade or so, because we reached a point where my mom was sort of like pulled out of the house and she was going to all these like different rehabs around the East Coast where they were trying to give her the help that she needed. And around that, I was just being told like, you know, your mother's sick. Um, she has problems. She has issues with alcohol. And at the time, I didn't even like fully process like the extent of like what drug addiction could do. So I always like psyched up alcohol to do this like ominous evil thing that had like yeah. taken my mother away from me, so to speak. So it wasn't, yeah. And it wasn't really until like when I was in fifth grade and I started to like really look back at what had happened and all like the weird things that she'd done. Like there were days where, um, like in preschool, um, she would dress up as like the little mermaid or she would dress up as like, like the musical cats or whatever. And she would come in and like entertain the kids. But I just remember like the atmosphere just being so weird and like so disquieting because it just like wasn't the way a functioning adult would like interact with children. Mm -hmm. Huh. And that's got to be such a strange dynamic for non-judgmental children to be observing this. And in one way, I mean, she probably, she's playing these fantastical games and scenarios with you and with your classmates. So I could see a lot of children just rolling with it. Yeah, exactly. And there's probably just a huge mix of perception in, is this normal or okay? Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think when I was a kid, like, even the friends that I brought over to the house, I don't think any of them ever, like, second-guessed that my mother had, like, strange qualities to her because I think they just saw it, like, as normal as they would, like, anyone else's parent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you're not taught as a kid to question those Yeah, that's the whole thing. I want to ask you about your mom's alcoholism or how you perceived it because what something you said stood out to me just now that you said you viewed alcohol as this evil, powerful substance that sort of, like, got its claws on her and took her in. Yeah. Um, do you still feel that way? Or how did that ever change? Cause I, I'm curious also, you know, in addition to all of the talk about disorder, about how we think about addiction and how we think about the agency of the substance in addiction or how it comes about. Do you, are you still really wary of alcohol or substances or has your perspective changed at all? Um, in high school, I was definitely extremely wary of substances. And I think a lot of the relationships that I had with my close friends were sort of like tainted in high school by the fact that they were getting into a lot of things that like, mm -hmm. you know, teenagers just like naturally do because they get involved in like risk inverse behavior. Like they start yep. drinking, yep. they start partying. And I just associated all of that with like all this dysfunction in my childhood. And I just like naturally almost, I felt so bad about it, but I just sort of started to like, gravitate away from the group of friends that I had mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and after that it was really just the struggle of deciding like you know did I do that because of my mom did I do that because like I didn't care about my friends and it really just like tore me up for a long time like 
thinking about why I did that. Yeah. Hey, I mean, same, same exact thing here. I went through the same thing in high school, associating it with that yeah. and also pulling away from friends because I said, I will never do these things that destroyed my family. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Well, do you think though, like this could be, you know, to either of you guys, um, do you think part of it is just when you go through something really hard as a kid, you just have a maturity and a seriousness that maybe people who didn't go through that have when you're in a, when you're a teenager? I mean, in my case, I think I always felt like less image, less mature than other kids because of the focus on like fantasy and childhood that my mother had like placed onto me. Mm -hmm. So I, I always felt almost like a child in an adult world as I got older. I felt like I was sort of trying to like preserve this like sense of innocence. And I, def mm -hmm. I definitely didn't feel like more mature than other kids. Okay. So, I mean, you're basically, you've, you've talked about how that has affected you and how the way you saw yourself. Was there any other way that experience affected the way you saw yourself and even the world? Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, like going back to like the anxiety that I feel on a daily basis, um, it's really been an uphill battle for me to be able to really trust people when I meet them mm -hmm. because I think like something else um, growing up is that I wasn't really like taught the importance of proper hygiene by my mother. So Gosh. a lot of like the bullying, yeah, it was really bad. Like, like just a lot of the brushing bullying, your teeth, you didn't, she wasn't even attentive yeah. to those things. Well, I, like looking back, like she might have been, but I wasn't really like given enough supervision to like have that ingrained mm. like, right. to the point where like I did it every single day. Yeah. So, yeah, and like I would go to school like with like stains on my shirt from like food that I ate, and it just got like really, really bad. Where kids just like pounded on me and treated me like really maliciously, and that was like really the root of the bullying. And after that, I just like started to like put up walls around me, mm -hmm. so to speak. I think that's where a lot of like the anxiety that I feel like started to manifest. Yeah. I mean, if you are seeing in your home life that you can't really count on people and you're seeing outside of the home, not only can you not count on people, but people are actively attacking you. That yeah. seems like a natural response. Yeah. And just like the hardest part for me, it was just knowing that other kids like didn't understand what I'd gone through and just like seeing everyone else like not having the same struggles. Mm -hmm. Like there was even one day where I think in middle school, like they sent me home because a teacher said like, Devin is like so unhygienic that I don't want to have him in my classroom. And they sent oh me home gosh. to like, yeah. And they sent me home to like take a shower. And like I had a nanny at the time because like my mom was out of the picture and she was saying like, you know, like I, I don't understand why this happened. So it was just all these like, question that I just couldn't comprehend. I just like retreated into my own skin almost. Right. So you retreated into your own skin and it sounds like these these escapist fantasy uh distractions also were sort of a retreat for you. Yeah. I mean I think when I was younger that was just sort of like what I did recreationally for fun. And then like as I got older, like despite the obvious dysfunction that I had with my mom growing up, that sort of became like a sense of comfort and a safety blanket for mm -hmm. me because that was what I thought back to when I thought of like feeling right. safe. Did you ever feel yeah. though as you grew up that on one hand those things were a comfort and an escape but on the other hand you associated them with uh, the problems you came to realize your mom had and they scared you? Yeah I mean um, since I was like a little kid like even when I was playing with my mom I always knew that like I wanted to be an artist and like I wanted to write stories in some capacity 
I mean, it wasn't even about like, you know, being successful or like being like mm-hmm. a famous author. I just like had this dire urge where, you know, I, I want to tell stories and like I need to do that. Like when I was a little kid, I would write things on the back of napkins at diners or I would like pull out notebooks and just like, yeah, yeah. I would just like carry them everywhere I went. As I got older, um, and I really just like started to become more dedicated to that. It really became a question of like, you know, I have this like obsession almost with like creating like fantasy and creating like imaginary worlds and characters. And I started to wonder like, the more I do this, am I sort of like feeding into this like weird attachment mm-hmm. that I had to my mom? So whenever I felt like really passionate about something that I wrote or a story, it would always like be in the back of my mind like, is it healthy for me to like express myself like this? And it's part of this like self-destructive. Well, it sounds like you're afraid of, am I becoming the person who hurt me? You know, which, yeah. If you don't mind, I'd like to read a quote from what you wrote me when we were talking about interviewing you. So you wrote, I ended up wanting to become a writer, but I could never tell if my focus on fantasy and storytelling was me becoming my mother in a way. So I was always scared that what I love to do, creating art, was potentially harmful because it felt like an escape. So has that conflict always been there between this feeling like what you should be doing, like your purpose even, but also feeling like you becoming your mother and like your worst fears? Yeah, it's so crazy because I almost feel like the passion that I feel is intertwined with so much dysfunction and when i was um a freshman in college i majored in theater arts and through through high school i had written a lot of plays that i wanted to like take to college and start working on as i really got into writing Mm -hmm. and as like an overzealous freshman i entered this like playwriting scholarship that the college has like i knew that i had no chance whatsoever but i just wanted feedback and just a sense of like where i stood Mm -hmm. and one of the judges said um, you know, because there's like scathing art snobs who say like really, <laughs> really critical things. Yeah. Um, they said, "Why do you bother writing plays if you can't relate to other people?" Oh. Wow. Yeah, and just the way that was worded just like cut my heart, and I like didn't recover for like two years after that. That's insane. And did you stop writing plays? No, I mean I'm still doing that, and I even like had a play that I wrote like perform. Oh later gosh. yeah like That's perform awesome. later in college. yeah it's i don't know it's, it's, hard, it's all like hard to process i guess yeah yeah, yeah um i mean that's wild that a judge would ever so i'm sorry that's just like put me back for a second that's insane that someone could say that i mean it's it's good to hear though that you uh kept kept on going from that yeah and i mean people always ask me like what would you do if you weren't writing and were doing something else and like it's not even a question i can answer because like I wouldn't be myself if I wasn't doing that. Mm-hmm. So it's not even something I can like really fathom. Like, yeah. Really. I, I mean, that's, that's pretty fair as far as, uh, I mean, getting into the philosophical idea of like a butterfly effect, you know, you would literally be a different person if anything had been different in the past. So you could argue that you couldn't be any other way. Cause this is you. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, people always, like, bring up the subject, too. Like, if you had the chance to go back and, like, fix your trauma so it never happened, mm-hmm. would you go through with it? And I think a lot of people give different answers depending on, like, the extent of their trauma or how much it affected their life. But in my case, it's almost, like, I don't think I would because I don't know who, who I would be right now without that and whether I would even, like, be at peace with that. Yeah. How do you think 
I, I also love to write. Um, Yay. And I can, yeah. <laughs> um, I think Spencer yeah. loves we to write. We all love to write. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, but I think for me, I everything hard I've been through has really shaped my writing and made it richer and deeper. And I'm just curious if you see the trauma that you went through kind of feeding your artistry in a, in a positive way. Yeah, I definitely do because I think um, – everything I went through, I don't think I would have had like the urge to understand people as much as I do if I hadn't sort of had to like retreat into this weird sort of introverted hermit mode like mm-hmm. early in my childhood because I think that made me a lot more introspective and just wanted to understand like why people thought the things they did or like why people did the things they did. Yeah, I had a teacher of fiction once describe fiction in a class to us as people's effort to unearth their emotional weight baggage trauma whatever you call it and express it in some creative way that you couldn't really rationalize yeah i mean i think there's such i would place such an importance on like anyone who's in like this kind of situation to just like find an avenue of self-expression like it doesn't even have to be writing but just like being able to put your thoughts out into the real world yeah. like, just means so much So I want to ask you also about, you know, you have this internal comparison between the passion you have for writing and how you see it as what you're meant to do and then your fears surrounding it and all the negative reminders it is of your experiences with your mom and sort of that relationship between disorder, problems, madness, and creative artistry. And that is also a relationship that is depicted in the media oftentimes of someone who uh-huh. is struggling with a lot of problems or disorder and is also very creative. And it goes all the way back to Van Gogh, people mm-hmm. talking in this yeah. way. Um, and there are a lot of different opinions about it. I've read articles that talk about its validity, this relationship, but also articles that talk about it being overblown because we tend to focus on these uh, extremities and personality quirks of very creative people and might have a bias in the lens we're looking through. So with you having grappled with these ideas internally, what do you make of that external perception and how society thinks of the relationship between disorder and creativity? Um, I think it's really fascinating because um, I'm sure there's a lot of people who think that their disorder and their passion are almost intertwined and I didn't I didn't like heard artists say that you know I I feel like I have to stay depressed because if I'm not depressed I don't know like if I would still have my creativity or my passion yeah yeah I've heard people say that I mean I sometimes I even feel the same way because I think that's sort of where my sense of empathy comes from but then there's the other question of like how much how much is that self-destructive and how much is that like sort of you freezing yourself in a way and like not not trying to move on so to speak but i'm not sure if that's the mm-hmm. right way to phrase it so like it's, intertwining your ident- identity with your um trauma yeah exactly yeah and it's like uh maybe a dilemma between focusing on advancing your work and advancing your mental health even if someone feels as if they need that trauma or baggage in order to produce what they're producing i mean i think people definitely transfer their self-expression throughout their life into different things i think they can start off like you know you could be like um 
building something in tech class in high school and that's how you express yourself. And then like mm-hmm. later on, you try doing something else and you take up writing or, you know, creativity isn't even limited to just like building things or creating things. You could, there's even ways like mathematical people can also be equally oh, as yeah. creative. And it just, yeah. And it just like transfers into that. Yeah, I I love that idea, and I think of, for example, I'm learning uh, programming right now, and I think of that as creative in some ways, that I think it only helps us as a society to broaden our perspective on what could or couldn't be creative, you know, rather than lumping people in as you're the rational guy, you're the creative guy, or limiting yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm always so envious and, like, admirable of people who are, like, really good at, like, techno-savvy, like, programming and stuff because that's so outside of my comfort zone but i'm just so intrigued by like how there's still creative expression like within that and just like putting like the building blocks together Mm -hmm. it's funny i think we just like to you know put people in different categories and i have a friend who's a who's a writer and she's always said to me she's this major extrovert loves people and she's always like i feel like i'm not supposed to be a writer because i love people (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like no no that's good but i it is funny how we think of artists as the tortured soul uh the almost antisocial person but i almost wonder if sometimes i i think that our culture is more extroverted and so do you think that it's almost, you know, maybe in a misunderstanding of how introverts process information and make decisions, uh, they see that's why artists get kind of portrayed in that way? Yeah. Um, I mean, like, my Myers-Briggs type is INFP, so, like, I'm an introvert to the core. <gasps> Me too. Awesome. I'm an INFP. Oh, my God. Yay. We're bonding. <laughs> the same person. You yes. are lovers. <laughs> yeah. Spencer's not a fan. <laughs> no, I'm not, a, I'm not an anti-fan. I just, I, I take it with a grain of salt. I'm, I think I'm INTP. I'm INTJ, yes. I'm definitely J. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I do think that most of the culture, we're kind of geared more towards extroverts. And so a lot of times I think introverts are misunderstood. And so when people create these big, deep, and almost maybe a little on the darker side pieces of art, I <laughs> this is my theory. I, I think sometimes extroverts don't know what to do with it. They're like, well, where did that come uh, from? And so then there's this kind of, I think that's part of the reason why there's this depiction of the tortured artist um, because, you know, there's a lot going on in an introvert that doesn't always get expressed vocally or um, to other people, and then it comes through in their art. Yeah, I mean, I almost like the term um, ambivert more than, like, introvert and extrovert. Yeah, I feel, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I feel like people definitely, like, change certain aspects of their personality based on, like, who they're around and who they feel comfortable around. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's the whole um idea like you said that introverts sort of have this like artistic potential and i don't necessarily like to buy into that so to speak because i think everyone to some capacity like is an introvert as much as they're an an extrovert and i feel like they could be put in situations where you would see like a totally different side of them come out that you would never have expected Mm. in another situation Mm I buy that, that you can put an introvert in a situation where they might be very extroverted or an extrovert in a situation where they might be more introverted. I I do think, though, like I am more comfortable in an introverted situation than I am in an extroverted. So I would say I would argue that I do think some people are bent a certain way and where they can use their gifts and their strengths come out sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, but I I agree. 
Yeah, I mean, like, my max is, like, four people, and then after that, I have to, like, clock out, because I just, like, can't handle, like, all the energy, like, bouncing around. Yeah. I definitely ta- prefer the the small group of friends to the dive bar or the club. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about social anxiety? I So, in a previous podcast, I talked about the fact I was homeschooled through eighth grade. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, and so, I think one of the things that people always ask me was, do you have social anxiety? And I never knew what to do with that question, because I, I don't really understand the term, and as you know, as we were talking about introversion, I'm like, well, yeah, I prefer to not be in huge groups of people, but yeah. I don't know. So, do you think you could talk more about that and what that felt like? Yeah, um, I think the best way to describe it, like in my case, at least, because I'm sure it differs for a lot of people, I can feel totally comfortable around like, certain people, like my friends or family, and that's when I think a lot more of my personality really comes out. But mm-hmm. if I'm around someone for like who, for whatever reason just puts me outside of my comfort zone, I just end up in a state almost where I just retreat into my own body and I'm just locked into my chest almost. And when words come out of my mouth, it's almost this like muttering that feels like an echo inside my head. And I know it's almost just like mumbling coming out and other people can't understand it. So it's just sort of like being frozen on a spot. Sounds like a physical sensation. Yeah, it's totally physical. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's crazy too because like in other situations, I'm totally not like that. Like if I'm around my friends, I can be like reasonably extroverted and people who I'm anxious around, whether like at school or at work, like never would have expected it. Sure. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the classical definition of introverts are people who get energy from being alone and extroverts get energy from being around a crowd. Do you feel like that applies at all? Um, I mean, I think introverts definitely recharge by being alone. I'm sure um, extroverts definitely do the same with large amounts of people. But I mean, I don't think, um, because I think human contact is like so essential. Oh, yeah. And I really think there is definitely a strength that we find with each other. And I'm sure, like, no matter how much that sort of isolation is worshipped, because I'm sure in some respects it's definitely beneficial, I do feel like human contact is extremely important and should be taken into consideration when you're, like, dwelling into that subject. It seems like connection in general is is a huge theme. And, I mean, I think we just, we all agree, we, we, we need it. And especially when people are going through difficult times, it becomes even more of an essential need. Do you think connection has played a role in you finding some healing with your trauma from your childhood and even with social anxiety? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, that's sort of the uphill battle that I think I faced for a good amount of time. Because I think, especially after middle school, where I think a lot of like the abuse that I was feeling got really, really bad, it really became this um, incentive for me to try to not feel scared of other people when I met them. Because it reached the point where, like, rather than meeting a new person and feeling like, what kind of similarities or connections do we have with each other? My first mm-hmm. instinct was like, how is this person going to hurt me? Like, like what's the next thing they're going to do? Yeah. Yeah. So I really had to work for a long time and I'm still working like every single day, like putting down my guard enough to like be vulnerable around other people. Yeah. To Mm -hmm. trust and to, yeah. I mean, I, I also struggled with the same thing. I do feel as if, as you get better at pulling that guard down, 
the fact that you struggled with it almost becomes a strength in that you understand when your guard is up and when it's down and you can control when it's up and when it's down. Cause sometimes you actually want it up, you know, if there's a situation yeah. that will, um, for lack of a better word, trigger you or make you upset in some way, uh, send you down a path you don't want to go, that guard can be useful and it's an option you have. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So you've made a lot of progress and come a long way in terms of facing that anxiety and working on bringing your guard down. What Was there any big key you found that made a big difference or any big piece of advice that if you were to talk to yourself when you were younger would you what would you say to yourself yeah I mean I think it's so simple what I would tell myself and I think it's just the fact that like you're hurting and I acknowledge that and that's okay Mm -hmm. and I think it's just the fact that when I was young there were so many people who made an effort to try to fix what I was going through like I was sent to the guidance office and we had these long discussions where you know maybe you should go out and join clubs maybe you should play a sport but I never felt like anyone really made an effort to understand like you know you're really beaten up here like can you talk about how you're feeling how can i like how can i try to understand that yeah so maybe take a break from obsessing over the solution and meet you know you where you are work through through what you need to work through um and accept that that pain is natural and okay yeah, because I think a lot of the time, too, I, you guys are mentioning this in your other podcast, I think people are so quick to diagnose anyone whenever they show a sign that there's something in their brain that isn't quite right or that society deems that we need to fix. Yeah. And the thing is, like, medication is so important, but if we don't go out of our way to validate how people are feeling and show them that it's okay to feel that way, there's only so much, like, a chemical imbalance can change because you really have to get like under their skin and show them that like you're not alone that's like the fundamental mm-hmm. thing that has to be tackled first i also think that we don't do a great job of recognizing that kids can have really complex deep emotion yeah and meeting them on that level i mean i, I used to teach and I, I i know that i didn't do that always with my students i would think of them as you know kids you know they oh they don't understand this but mm-hmm. I, I think kids understand a whole lot more than we give them credit and so it sounds like you didn't really get that and you needed it yeah it's just unbelievable too looking back um especially at middle school where i was coming to school with like you know not having bathed correctly with like clothes that weren't washed and teachers would give me almost this like cold look in a way where they said like you know why is this happening like you're going to be sent away to the guidance office until we find a way to like deal with this and looking yeah. back i just yeah i just had this ongoing question of like what am i doing wrong how is no one processing what i'm feeling yeah it's i mean just the the fact of putting the blame and the uh responsibility all on your shoulders as if you're a derelict child yeah uh, i can't imagine the message that sends yeah it's just insane to look back at it like whenever i try to put it into words i just end up on this weird in this weird state where i'm just wondering why didn't anyone do anything Mm -hmm. i would be angry if i were you yeah no i think i had a lot of unrealized anger for a really really long time because i think my instinct was always to retreat into myself and sort of put up walls rather than directing the anger outward Mm -hmm. because i never really had a way to I, I never had anywhere to put it. Well, Devin, it sounds like you're doing really well. And I just thank you for sharing your story with us. I can't imagine 
just having gone through all of that and you seem like you're using your gifts for writing and enjoying it and, and it's succeeding. So I applaud you for that. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, I really enjoyed speaking here. I think it was really healthy for me to put my story into words. And I hope um, anyone who's in a similar situation that I've been in looks to self-expression as an outlet to what they're going through and just considers you know, any kind of art or any kind of form of storytelling or creation as a way to deal with what they're feeling. I, I think they will, Devin. I mean, I appreciated how explicit and concrete you were with what you would say to yourself when you were younger, with how you feel you've made progress, with how self-expression can really benefit people who have this internalized, heavy trauma. And I really do think people will get a lot out of that. So from uh, both of us, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. It was, it was great talking to you guys. All right. That was our talk with Devin. He had a ton to share and is definitely someone I could see coming on the podcast again someday. Uh, very interesting conversation. And we're not going to bury the lead. We're going to get straight into our talk with Amanda now. Hi, guys. I'm here with Amanda Rabinowitz. She has a PhD in clinical psychology from Penn State University, and her dissertation research was focused on cognitive and emotional changes after traumatic brain injury. So as you can imagine, I was very fascinated about talking to her. And now she's pursuing a research career examining the phenomenology and treatment of behavioral changes related to brain injury. Um, But she's also a listener of the Redeeming Disorder podcast. And Amanda, thanks for being on. Well, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, Amanda, welcome. We're really excited to get another perspective of a professional. We had a therapist on already, but we haven't had anyone really focused in the research arena. Mm -hmm. And so that should be really interesting. And I'm sure you have a lot to talk about with, you know, having researched something so similar to what Laura's been through. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm excited to talk about all of it. I mean, and what um, one of the things that uh, really that prompted me to reach out was, you know, hearing you guys talk about your personal stories. I mean, I could just remember all of these misconceptions that I had about what it means to start to be open about this stuff and get help that then mm-hmm. going to graduate school and getting training for it really opened my eyes to all of the possibilities that are out there and just how misunderstood that landscape is so i you know wanted to talk about it with you guys well what were the misconceptions that you kind of had before going to graduate school sure so i mean i took some notes on this so that i would be (laughs) talk about it i know um yeah so I think that um, a lot of people, when they think about psychotherapy, they think that they're going to go and talk to a professional and the professional is going to after, you know, maybe 15 minutes or an hour say, aha, I know exactly what's wrong with you. And this is like the secret key that we unlock yeah. now. So yeah. they, I think that there's a lot of focus on this diagnosis, I, this idea of having a diagnosis or getting an answer or maybe something like, oh, it's your relationship with your mother, or that there's going to be some, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, succinct thing. And and then people think, well, oh, I already know what's wrong with me, or, you know, I don't know what therapy is going to, how therapy is really going to help me. Maybe they're not interested in that kind of exercise. And um, I think that that's, you know, I can understand why people get that impression. I think that's what you see a lot in movies and, you know, television portrayals of therapy, but good therapy. And I think most, you know, of our contemporary therapies are really focused on 
the here and now. So it's not always so much about just this exhaustive probe into your past and identifying, you know, the one thing that, you know, triggered things on a certain course, but it's about Mm -hmm. giving you the skills and the insights and um, just giving you more tools to deal with some of the challenges that you're dealing with in your everyday life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's a lot of appeal in that idea that there's going to be like an answer or an origin story or something that we can point to and say, you know, this is the source of whatever is going on. Um, But, you know, and that might be appealing to some people. But I think that over the long term, what people really need is to live in the moment that they're in and to, and, and we're really much more complicated than that. Even if you can find one of those moments, you know, it's, um, you know, it's not always, it's, that's not always going to unlock, you know, everything that you need because maybe you're much more, maybe you're not concerned about that childhood moment. Now you're really concerned about success at your job or your current relationships. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that there's a lot of therapies that, um, and I think most of the most evidence-based contemporary therapies are much more in that here and now yeah. arena. Right. And willing to look at the complexity and not just, you know, people like a simple answer, I guess, to complicated questions, maybe when it yeah. isn't always a simple answer. What are some of the therapies that you can think of that do focus on the here and now? Well, um, yeah, that's a great question. So um, there are, I mean, even the therapies that are so you know, to give you kind of an overview of what different therapies there are, probably the most popular current evidence-based treatments are all in the family that you would call cognitive behavior therapy. Um, And that um, really comes from the idea that the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we behave are really intimately linked. And if you can sort of intervene at any point in that cycle, you can change all three of those. So for example, a really popular cognitive behavioral treatment for depression focuses on changing your behavior to change the way you feel. So even if you don't feel like getting out and being productive or going for a jog in the morning, you do activity scheduling or you use these other techniques or these other tools to get yourself acting like a happy person would act. And then lo and behold, Mm -hmm. you know, people start feeling a little bit better about themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And those treatments are really focused on a lot of skills, a lot of activities, like a lot of concrete exercises. So that appeals to a lot of people because you can go home and you can have worksheets or you can have like techniques that you can practice. Um, So those are things that are really, really applicable to the here and now. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tangible and and actionable. I can definitely see that appeal. Yeah. Is that that different than uh, positive psychology? Or does yeah, that kind so of fall into it? It is It is a little different than positive psychology. Um, they are kind of, um, there are ways and they're related, that they're related because posit- there are some positive psychology interventions that are very akin to that. Um, you know, the, the founder of positive psychology kind of came up from a cognitive behavior therapy um, background to some extent. Um, hmm. And positive psychology is kind of just an interest. It's been an interesting paradigm shift in the field, and it's still a relatively small part of clinical psychology. But instead of focusing on things like depression and anxiety and doom and gloom, the positive psychologists say, let's look at things like 
gratitude and happiness and fulfillment. And instead of trying to just uh, change these negative experiences, let's really try to foster positive experiences. Mm, okay. Is so, there ever any intersection? Sorry, I just wanted to ask about analytical yeah. psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Is there ever intersect? Is there ever any intersection between it and cognitive behavioral therapy? Um, so, I mean, there are co- the 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 divide between cognitive behavior therapy and um, psychoanalytic therapy is is a little bit of a uh, it's like a little bit of a turf war. There, you definitely have people, your partisans in either camp mm. when it comes to those two treatments. But there are a handful of therapies that have started integrating aspects of both of those. So um, so Spencer, just to give a little bit of background for your listeners who might be not be familiar with yeah, what psychoanalytic yeah. therapy is, is, you know, this is the therapy that's in the tradition of Freud. Um, and the idea behind it is that you can, uh, you know, look into an individual's uh, you, if you work with an individual to understand elements of their past and their relationships, especially their relationships with their primary caregivers, you can start to see patterns that might be influencing both their interpersonal dynamics, so how they deal with emotions in themselves, and their intra, interpersonal dynamics as well, so how they react to other people. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the that's sort of the stereotype movie version of psychotherapy where you have the person on the couch and the tell me about your mother, um, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And they um, have like a recurring vision. There was a kite and like, <laughs> I remember yeah. incident cooking or whatever it is, these memories they keep going back to. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, and there are still strong proponents of that type of psychotherapy, even though it is considered by a lot of people in the field a little bit outdated, but it does seem to be um, particularly useful for certain types of clients. And like I said, there have been kind of new wave therapies that have integrated forms of psychoanalytic psychotherapy and CBT. So I'm thinking about, um, well, I don't even know if, uh, I don't, I, I don't want to get too in the weeds about this because I'm sure that some mm-hmm. expert would be some, so, but dialectic behavior <laughs> therapy is a type of therapy that's uh, really good for individuals with borderline personality disorder. So okay, people who have, and, and this is something, you know, one of the things, Laura, you asked is how do you know what kind of therapy is right for you? And mm-hmm. I mean, I would say that, so CBT probably has the strongest evidence base. And as a researcher, I'm always interested in what are the most evidence-based interventions. Um, But I know enough to know that people are complicated. And I know certainly firsthand that, you know, not even the most supported therapy is going to work for every individual. And you really have to be aware of that. And I think that when people have a lot of problems in, their relationships and find themselves having the same relationship problems over and over again with different people across many different areas of their lives. I do think that there's something to that kind of psychoanalytic therapy that can help you gain insight into why you're enacting these same patterns over Mm -hmm. and over again. Is that the same thing as like talk therapy? So talk therapy is an umbrella term that refers to all of these types of therapies that are primarily based on talking back and forth as opposed to medication or something else. Okay. Got it. So yeah, lots of different types of therapies, but I guess if you want to take a step back to something you said a few minutes ago, you talked about uh, 
the focus on diagnoses and how there is tension between wanting to get yeah. to a single diagnosis that encapsulates everything versus just looking at the complications of a symptoms list. Where do yeah. you fall on that? Because it's something we've talked about a bit and how it's tricky. They do convey information and help explain yeah. things, but there's also, the, at least I feel as if there's a bit of a problem with the looking at a diagnosis as a binary, you have it or you don't. So where do you, what are your thoughts on that? I, I agree with you 100% on that, Spencer. I mean, I think that we know that our diagnostic categories are crummy. You know, as a field, you know, I guess it's um it's more psychiatry, but um, with a mm -hmm. lot of interface from psychology that develops the diagnostic statistical manual that, um, you know, catalogs all of the disorders. And it's always the result of endless bickering and the and the product makes nobody happy <laughs> whatsoever yeah. and so it has like thousands of disorders right yeah yeah and the um well thousands i don't know if there's thousands but there's a lot yeah, of them and there's um and you know and we know that our we know that our diagnoses are not succeeding very well because there's a lot of overlap between diagnoses. So they're not parsimoniously explaining what's going on in an individual. We see a lot of comorbidity and mm -hmm. diagnoses also aren't great at predicting, you know, how somebody, somebody's prognosis, what treatments they're going to do well in. So we know that, um, that they really, really fall short, but there's undeniably something that's useful about being able to have a shorthand for describing certain aspects of what somebody's experiencing. Mm -hmm. That's that's true. But I think that um, anybody would agree that these things are really um, exist on a continuum and there's um, dimensionality there and it's not such a, it's, it's, it's a more complex thing than any one label yeah. could ever capture. Right. Going off of it being on a, continuum. This is just something I've been curious about. There are certain disorders that people say are impossible to cure or mm. impossible to come back from certain personality disorders. I know people yeah. say this about narcissism. Mm -hmm. Um, do you feel as if there it's, you know, these things are a continuum, but there are certain things that you can reach a point of no return, or do you think it's, it's just hard to get a, a picture of? Yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating question because, I mean, part of what, when you start talking about these things being at a, on a continuum and the kind of, and the notion of cure, I mean, a lot of what we talk about as, I mean, in your podcast is called Redeeming Disorder, and I thought a lot about the use of the word disorder because a lot mm -hmm. of what we talk about as disorders or diagnoses. I mean, there's a place where, I mean, it's hard to find that line where the, your personality, who you are as a person stops and disorder begins, right? So like mm -hmm. anybody who's experienced depression or anxiety, you know, can probably pinpoint those moments where it's like, I don't really feel like myself right now. I feel like depression is taking over. Um, mm -hmm. So it's useful to that extent to say, okay, this doesn't feel like me, it's my depression, but maybe there's parts of you that are like that even when you're not depressed. Like maybe you're a little bit more introspective or maybe you're a little bit more emotionally reactive. And those aren't necessarily things that are bad. You know, those aren't things we want to label right. as problems. That's just part of, you know, that's just the range of the human experience. So, um, it can be tricky to talk about curing some things because when we talk about like these personality disorders, that's really 
the um, extreme example of that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, people have, I mean, everybody has some level of narcissism, you know, maybe a very yeah. low level or a high level. Um, and it's hard to know, like, and, and at some points on that scale, that narcissism can be adaptive. And there are some people mm-hmm. who would be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder who might be functioning very well and might also be very happy in their lives. Like they might be making a lot of people around them miserable, but you know, where do you say the problem is? Do you say that that, that's Mm. somebody who needs to be cured? So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess you can get into the same thing with high functioning psychopaths or sociopaths, um, where similar, there's a similar narrative that there is no cure. Um, and I guess it gets especially tricky when they're, not violent, but I, I, that, that's a whole nother can of worms. I don't yes, want to, yeah. I don't want to derail us too much. I'm actually really fascinated by personality tests and helping people kind of understand their personality. And there's two in particular I'm really fascinated with. One is Myers-Briggs and the other is a newer one that I've heard about. It seems really popular. It's called Enneagram. And what I like about them is they show the healthier side of your personality and then what you could look like as uh, maybe an unhealthy period. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm, I'm familiar with both Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram and they're not like they wouldn't, they're not considered um, psychometrically sound personality tests that are used within the field right. of psychology, even though they have gained popular, per, like a lot of popularity. Um, but the idea of personality and how it interacts with psychopathology or um, mental disorders is um, that is a whole field of study. Um, and uh, so some of the things, I mean, so the typical um, personality traits that you think about that are, you know, most popularly studied are the big five, neuroticism, extroversion, openness to experience and conscientiousness. And then the those are the four ones that are um, most reliably measured. And then I think, and I'm mm-hmm. missing what the fifth one is, but um, it'll come to me later. So um, the idea of personality and psychopathology, I think it's kind of gets back to this, um, this point that is kind of important to me, but, you know, neuroticism is something that we consider to be, um, a disorder in some cases mm-hmm. we consider it related to depression and anxiety and it certainly is but it's also you know a personality trait that everybody has to some extent and mm-hmm. the extent to which you're neurotic i mean it might make you a little bit more cautious it might make you um a little bit more um perhaps contemplative before you you know, move forward with something. And those things aren't sure. necessarily bad. And if, if you think about like, if you have a whole like society of people, you want some people who are really outgoing and sensation seeking and some people who are a little bit more cautious and that kind of creates mm-hmm. a working society. So, right. There's yeah. And, and of- yeah, we, we, we kind of value one or the other. Oftentimes it seems as if our society puts a huge emphasis on extroversion as if it's better. Yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine other societies that are organized other ways that might be different. I mean, we know that that, you know, that if you look cross culturally, different attributes are valued more. And, you know, so Mm -hmm. some of these things like, you know, I think that, you know, that there's something especially like if you think about, you know, 
Prozac nation and this idea that like anything, <laughs> yeah. anything that feels bad is something that has to be medicated away or anything mm-hmm. that's different mm-hmm. is something that is a problem that needs to be treated. Um, you know, sometimes I think we need to just accept that it's okay to have, it's okay to be sad sometimes. It's okay to be anxious sometimes. If these things yeah. are getting in the way of living your life, I absolutely think that it's a great idea to seek help for them. But I also think sometimes we have to have some acceptance of ourselves that, yeah. you know, that, you know, your personality can just be a little bit moody. And if it doesn't interfere mm-hmm. with your life and relationships, then, you know, that's okay. And you don't have to beat yourself yeah. up for not, you know, feeling happy a hundred percent of the time. And, you know, having mm-hmm. this perfect life, I think that we have, yeah. we have sort of pathologized all kinds of negative emotions when those negative emotions can be informative you know feeling totally feeling sad or feeling anxious or feeling worried can just let you know that there's something in your life that you want to pay a little bit more attention to or a little bit less attention to um and it doesn't and i think the resistance to that can amplify problems oftentimes i mean i feel as if when you embrace something or just let it be like you said it uh ultimately you can be at much better peace with it. And it seems weird, but I think it's completely possible to be happy and experiencing pain or strain at the same time. If you can just be with those hard emotions, I think you can still tune into, you know, maybe not happiness, overwhelming happiness, but sort of a calm. And it just seems better to me to, to be able to cope with everything. Yeah, yeah. It's so it's really interesting that you say this, Spencer. I really recently um, learned about this new form of psychotherapy. I was at a conference, um, and I'd heard about it before, but I learned much more about it. And this is called acceptance and commitment mm-hmm. therapy. And um, it was in the context of the researcher had been studying it in brain injured individuals. But the idea of acceptance is that you accept that so cognitive therapy focuses a lot on changing your negative thoughts Mm -hmm. and this acceptance and commitment therapy is about like just accept that those thoughts are there don't try to do anything with them don't try to argue with them don't try to make them go away just accept that they're there but then commit to the values that you have anyway so you know maybe i feel like a failure today but i'm committed to being a good partner for my girlfriend or i'm committed to being a good mother so even though i feel like a failure i'm still going to you know do all those things that i want to do and then you have those experiences of you know getting those things done which give you self esteem but the idea sure. is like sometimes when we wrestle with our negative thoughts and we wrestle with our negative emotions we give them a lot of power over us and it can actually amplify them instead of, you know, making them go away. As a mental health professional, as a researcher um, mm-hmm. and a psychologist, uh, what have you heard in our podcast that you might take issue with or you might question? Let's see. Well, um, you know, like I like I said, you know, even though sometimes I have like these very firm thoughts on what, you know, I think is best like level of clinical treatment. I also accept that everybody, you know, is different and needs to find their own thing. And, and, and I, the most important thing is if it, if it resonates with you and if it feels like you're taking the step that you need to take, then, you know, a lot of times that's, that's important. I mean, I could send you to the best therapist who has the, you know, 
best track record in the world. And if you, if you're not there, then you're not going to get anything Mm -hmm. out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, and a lot of what you guys have talked about has, you know, been what other, what, what individuals have experienced. And, you know, you just can't argue with what anybody, it's, you know, that, that's, that's what they've experienced. So, I mean, I've been, Really happy, though, to hear, you know, a lot of the people who have come on the podcast talk about the ways that they've gotten help and the things that they've tried. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I wanted to definitely say today, uh, like, and this goes along the lines of misconceptions about therapy is, mm-hmm. you know, one of the misconceptions that I hear is like, I've already tried that and it didn't work. And like just having tried therapy in the past and not having it been successful, like doesn't mean that therapy isn't going to work for you because there's so many different types of therapy and we've talked about some of them today and even this, and there's so many different types of therapists. Sometimes it's even like, you know what, like you've already talked to like a younger woman, maybe who would do better with an older man. I mean, like all of those things play a huge role. So there are like two sides of the same coin where you can't argue with someone's individual experience or say, no, that didn't help you. But you do have to keep in mind that someone's individual experience doesn't necessarily pertain to how you might need to find help and how you've tried to find help in the past doesn't necessarily pertain to how you might succeed in finding help in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, that definitely resonates with me. And if we can just wrap up with one more question, Um, since you do have so much knowledge, I'm just curious, what would you suggest someone do if they're not a therapist but if they're really close with someone in their lives if they have a loved one who's struggling with a disorder because we've spoken to so many people who have people they love and care about who are struggling with this stuff and uh what what would be your top piece of advice for them in understanding and in doing what they can for that person Oh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, you know, because even as somebody who's a therapist, sometimes I struggle to do the right things for people to find Mm, the right way to be a help to people in my life. And I think like one thing that you want to do if you do, if you are concerned about somebody in your life and you want to help them is, you know, just make it clear that you're a safe space for them to go to that you're going to listen that you're not I mean, one thing, you know, I think that it's great to encourage people to do things that you think will help them. But if somebody comes to you and always feels like you're shoving the same thing down their throat, yeah. then they're, 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 you're not going to be the person that they're going to feel most comfortable yeah. with. So I think it's meeting people where they are, you know, being a safe space for them to come to. Don't necessarily try to fix their problems but try to empathize with their problems and and then i think you know making the information available like in a way that feels safe to them like and one of the resources i wanted to recommend to your listeners is um psychology today so psychologytoday.com has a find a therapist tab and you can put in 
your zip code and it gives you a lot of information about all the different mental health practitioners. Like some of the things we talked about today, you can find out either based on what you're struggling with or based on yeah. what kind of approach appeals to you. You can get a lot of that information. Um, so I think, you know, being a resource of information, but not feeling like you're pushing something. Pushing on the solution. The, yeah. 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 And I've used that psychology today tool. I've played with that psychology mm -hmm. today tool and definitely it is really useful for anyone looking looking for yeah. a therapist or who feels they might need something in particular. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I definitely agree about uh, seeing where someone is and not necessarily, not necessarily saying, hey, the solution's over here, but going and meeting them and then listening to them, making them feel safe and comfortable and when they're ready, moving toward the solution with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier said than done, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's what you, it's what you got to try to do. Well, thank you a ton for coming on. It's been really great to hear from you. Yeah, no, no, this has been this has been really fun. It was great to talk to you guys. And you as well, Amanda. Thanks so much and have a great one. Well, I mean, I loved both those interviews with Devin and Amanda, and then we got to talk about my favorite topic, but Spencer's least favorite topic, personalities. Uh, I hate personalities. <laughs> no. I, no, per I'm, not, I'm not totally anti-personality test. I just think you need a grain of salt. You need to realize that you can't encapsulate the entire human psyche with 16 permutations of a, of a personality test. And I would respond that your personality would say something. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, I am bummed if you, and you probably noticed, but my sound stopped working when we were in the middle of our interview with Amanda. So I'm bummed because I had all of these questions. I wanted to ask her about her research on traumatic brain injuries, but that will come next time hopefully if we have her on again and it was a good one i could yes. see you next time yes absolutely um but uh thank you both uh, Devin and amanda for reaching out and supporting the redeeming disorder podcast both by listening and coming on and sharing your wisdom with us i got a lot out of it and i think listeners definitely will and please keep reaching out to us because, as you see, these can be really great episodes. I think this was one of our best episodes, and it came only because of people who reached out to us. So please keep contacting us. We'd love to hear it. We'd love to hear your stories, whether or not you want to come on and, and share everything with everyone you know, right away. Um, it's really valuable for us. And uh, thanks so much for everyone who has reached out so far. We really appreciate it. And we also really appreciate your engagement with the podcast. We see in the downloads the same people downloading it each time and those numbers staying really steady. So it's really cool to see that a lot of you are engaged and listening to every episode. And if you really do like the podcast and want to spread the word, if you could take a second to rate and subscribe it, that goes a long way toward more people hearing it yes. and if you've already done that if you could even get a friend or a family member to rate and subscribe uh, that's going to help so much for us getting this out there and continuing to grow this podcast which just proves itself as worth it as we keep hearing from you mm -hmm. as you keep reaching out and when we hear that it's helping at least someone out there who relates Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I actually went on iTunes and read some of the, I hadn't read any of the reviews and it was so encouraging. But also just uh, you can also comment on our episodes so that Devin and Amanda can see what you think about what they shared. And you can do that at redeemingdisorder.wordpress.com. And as always, tweet us, follow us on Instagram, use your social media <laughs> or email, <laughs> you, all of the above. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening, and until next time. Where did you